Good evening. How are you this evening? Well? Somebody said well. I love the theme song, don't you? I sang it this morning. And I said, can you imagine anybody who would say, no, thank you, I'll only have half? It is Friday evening, and you are a little tired, I can see that. We are glad that you are here for this Health Ministries Convention. We believe that, as we have been guided to believe, that the health message is the right arm of what God wants to accomplish on this planet. And I, I, I want to give this little statement before I go too far this evening, and it goes like this. I actually said it to the folks who I met with this morning, and that is a number of years ago I was entering the United States through a Canadian airport. And the immigration officer, the U.S. immigration officer said to me, uh, where are you going? And I said, I am uh, going to Chicago and I'm going to take a drive to Berrien Springs, Michigan, and uh, there I'm going to go to the board meeting of the Andrews University. He said, you were in the United States last week. I said, that's right. He said, where were you going then? I said, well, I flew to Los Angeles and then drove to Loma Linda to attend board meetings of Loma Linda University. And he looked at me and his face kind of scrunched up and he then used an expletive, which we'll delete tonight. But he said, what are you, a blankety-blank board groupie? <laughs> My encouragement in telling that story is that so often we come to events like this that have been planned and programmed and tuned finely, and we go home and say, man, we had a great time. And we become meeting groupies. Let's make the determination that by God's grace, the things that we learn here, we will take home and implement in the name of Jesus for the blessing of the people in our world, right? So thank you for being here. I, I do want to repeat what I heard Deborah Brill saying earlier. We are very grateful to God at the North American Division that we were able to find Katja Reinert. And uh, for the work that she has done uh, throughout the past year, it has been quite amazing. Especially, you know, when we, when we first invited Katya to come to the North American Division, she said, I have to tell you something. And you may choose to say, you don't want me. And that is, I have been granted a fellowship, a sponsorship by the National Institutes of Health to do a PhD. And I don't want to lose that opportunity. So while she's doing all this stuff, she is also doing her PhD. And she takes out the garbage, sweeps the floor, and does the dishes besides. Would you bow your head with me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. When it comes to a discussion of your plans for the human family, there isn't one person in this room, including myself,
who is worthy to take your name on our lips. But we come boldly to you tonight, asking you to cover us as we speak and as we listen so that we can truly understand your will for us. And tonight we would see Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. The mission statement of the North American Division reads as follows. To reach North America, Bermuda, and Guam, Micronesia with the distinctive Seventh-day Adventist message of hope and wholeness. That is our mission. Now that message, that brief statement is set in a much broader context. But all that we do in the next 10 days must focus upon that mission. You see, that statement that I read is rooted in the Word of God. It is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message he came to proclaim. The message that was heralded by the disciples and ever since. And the message that we talk about when we talk about Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 through 12. Right in the heart of that message is the idea, the principle that God entered into the human picture to provide hope and wholeness to the human family. I walked into uh, the store to buy a Siamese fighting fish. Many years ago when I had time for hobbies, I I built an aquarium and stocked it with fish. And I, I used to really enjoy that. But in the process of building it, stocking it, and maintaining it, I became a friend with the pet store owner. Uh, We had many conversations, philosophical and otherwise. But one day as I walked into his store, he looked at me and he posed this question. He said, what business does a religion have involving itself in the health of the community? Is this just another one of the hooks that you Christians use to con people into your beliefs. And I responded by making this statement that offering physical health and happiness to people was as much a part of the work of God and the plan of God as the eternal benefits that Jesus offered to them. That God came into the world for a very specific purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. I concluded our non-fish dialogue that day with the thought that health, spirituality, and education were all one and the same in the mind of God. Jesus came to heal, to preach, and to teach, and to provide hope and wholeness for all humanity. And we dare not enter into this conference with any other view. It is one of the great issues that confront us as an organization in 2012, and that is that we have broken up into little silos, almost like we have an education church and an ecclesiastical church and a medical health church. And the time has come for us to listen to the voice of God's Spirit 
and begin to move together to collaborate with such godly authority that the work of God will have efficiency like it has never had. You see, Jesus saw no distinction. God is no respecter of persons. Jesus' heart was moved by human need as reflected in this passage from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. He was moved by compassion for them because they were wearied and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Perhaps the statement that best synthesizes the whole idea I'm trying to introduce here tonight is one that I found and that you are well acquainted with from the book Ministry of Healing. And it reads like this, The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, won their confidence, and then he bade them come and follow me. As we talk about health and pedagogy and theology, this must be our foundation. If we talk about better diets or health practices or mental health, then let this be our modus operandi. As we talk about the message of Revelation 14 verses 6 through 12, let it always be with the view in mind that the good will of God is reaching down to the human family in order to bless them with wholeness and health and hope and happiness. That in the process of introducing men to follow him, Jesus always built trust in the minds of men. Then he extended the invitation to follow him. And I want to suggest tonight that our, that is our task as well. To bring people into a relationship of trust with God. He was uh, 11 years old, this little lad I want to tell you about. 11 years of age and he sat alone in his room crying, attempting to sort out life and to understand this new turn of fate uh, that saw him on the road again. For him, life hadn't been a piece of cake. Hadn't been a positive experience. Two times abandoned by his family and then finally given up for care in foster homes. Rejected by three families as incorrigible, uncontrollable, and hopeless. Abused by parents and then by foster parents to such an extent that he has now become a twisted soul. In only a few hours, the social service officers would arrive at that home to remove him and then to attempt to place him in another home. And, and what had he done to break that relationship? He had drawn a map. Nothing wrong with being a cartographer. But he had drawn a map, a map of the entire house that he was living in, on his map, he had labeled hiding places for things that he possessed and the things that he intended to steal. But there was no evidence that he had stolen anything yet. But everything that he owned 
I don't know what's happening. It sounds like there's shrapnel outside, and if you're concerned, duck. He had hidden everything that was important to him in a secret place. He was a product, this young man, unable to trust anyone, not able to get beyond his repeated rejection by one family unit after the next. So how could he trust? What would form the basis of his ability to develop a trusting relationship when he had come to the conclusion that those who said they cared for him only cared as long as he did everything according to their plans? This young lad was well aware of the fact that should he get in the way of those plans, should he walk across an imaginary line of their devising, then he would be out again. And I want to tell you, when I looked at him and when I thought of his situation, there was one word that came to my mind, and it was this word, impossible. Impossible. But here's the scoop on this. There are many people who live in our society under the same societal circumstances. There are many people, especially in our world, and let us not fool ourselves that we can remain aloof from human society, that somehow we can send somebody else out to do the job, to connect with people on a real level, and that they will somehow find their way to God's kingdom. Many people, you know, we have multiple societies in the North American division. We just have had Guam Micronesia added to our division. Our division now extends from Bermuda to within 700 miles of the Philippines. And there are societies, very different and divergent societies, and God is calling you and me to reach those people. And yet there are multiple thousands and perhaps millions of people who live in an attitude of being unable to trust. This young man was a symbol of a whole generation who are finding it more and more difficult to find faith. Faith in their fathers, faith in their mothers, faith in their superiors, and any faith whatsoever in religion. You see, we are serving societies today that are weary and scattered as sheep without a shepherd. What is it that we have to offer them that is relevant to their life circumstances? How do we offer them hope and wholeness? How do we get close enough to them that they will listen to us? How can we show them that God identifies with them and cares about them? Because if you think that we will do anything other than that or that we can function on any other basis, then you're wrong. I want to read two Bible texts and use them as a basis for our discussion tonight. The first comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. It reads like this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses or infirmities in many Bibles, but we have one who has been tempted in every way 
just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And then Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, who in the days of his flesh, it's talking about Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Two amazing passages of Scripture. We are invited to approach Jesus, who knows and understands human infirmity, because he himself was not involved in some kind of play act. I love that statement. What did Jesus, who created the heavens and the earth, have to learn? What does it mean when it says, yet he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered? See, ultimately the walk of Jesus was one moment by moment, day by day progression beyond anything we can dream about because he never did sin, right? And yet there were demands on him. I want to clarify a couple of things to begin with. One concept needs to be clarified, and it is this. Hebrews 4.15, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. And then Hebrews 4.15, We do not have, and this is from the New Century Version, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. With our weaknesses. We need to understand this word which is translated as infirmity or weakness. What Paul is descri- or what is Paul rather describing here when he talks about an infirmity? And what does Jesus understand about our personal infirmities? And how do we get this message out? The Greek word that is translated as infirmity may be translated in either of the two following ways. Number one, it can mean lacking strength. Or number two, It can be an inability to achieve certain results because of natural weaknesses. Paul does not define infirmities as sins, but rather as tendency or tendencies which might pave the way for sin to happen. Looking at the question from another angle, my infirmities might prevent me from fully appreciating the right course of action to take. You see, all of us are the product of our heredity as well as our environment. Human beings collect infirmities as well or all along the way as we move through life. The point is this. One thing is abundantly clear here as we read what Paul has to say in a more careful manner. And it is this, that Jesus not only understands the fact that we have infirmities or weaknesses or inabilities, but he is acquainted with the feelings associated with them. And not only do we need to understand this, but you all understand the point of grace, right? 
I say to people over and over again, please do not accept grace. Do not accept God's grace if you do not intend to be gracious. Grace is given to you and to me so that we can pass it on to others. So Jesus not only understands the fact that we have infirmities or weaknesses or inabilities, but he is acquainted with the feelings associated with them. And as we begin to think of how is it that we can reach out to a world in need, first of all, we need to understand this ourselves before we can pass it on. The fifth chapter of Hebrews. Jesus suffered. And he didn't always communicate with God as though they were having a pleasant talk on a beautiful day. Now my Bible informs me of this. He prayed with strong crying and tears. Secondly, he relied upon the Father to provide him with the daily energy to face that which faced him. And then he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood when he was wrestling with the question of human destiny. Yes, Jesus was deeply affected by his surroundings and also by the fact that he had inherited 4,000 years of physical deterioration in his body. He knows what your pain and my pain feels like because he has felt it. To what extent? To the fullest extent. All of the feelings, anxieties, pains, frustrations, and temptations came to him as one who had come to redeem the human family. I will never face temptations on that scale. But Jesus did. Years ago, we needed a second car. So I went out and bought my wife an Envoy Epic. Anybody even heard of that? Nobody has even heard of an Envoy Epic. You don't know what you're missing. Well, you could add to that that I paid $200 for it. <laughs> and I let my wife drive it. And I drove the Dodge Monaco with the 384 engine in it, or 484 engine in it. And uh, I let her drive that other thing. I want to ask you the question, who do you think? Who do you think had the greatest temptation to speed? Don't play philosophical games on me. You know, it was me. Because I had the ability to do that. Satan didn't give Jesus a little bit of anything. He brought temptation and frustration and anxiety and pain and bad feelings upon Jesus with an intensity that you and I will never experience. Did God identify with the human family in the person of Jesus? He did. And Jesus, clinging to the will of God, said it all when he was about to die. He said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Listen to Paul's understanding of the depth of Jesus' understanding of the human circumstance recorded in Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, in human appearance uh, as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Those words guarantee our hope and wholeness. They allow you and me to look at the future in a positive way. These are the words that will permit a cynical word, world to trust. Uh, you and I are called upon to experience God's grace and then to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to a world in need. And again, I want to repeat, please don't accept the grace of God if you do not intend to be gracious. Everything that God has given to you and me, He has given for the purpose that we might share it. We are to become servants of all in our collective approach to God's healing of the nations. I want to bring this whole issue home now as we review a series of questions and answers drawn from the life experience of Jesus that so powerfully demonstrate the fact that God came to identify with human need. Because that's what this is all about, isn't it? Sharing any kind of health ministry or spiritual ministry is all about telling people that God loves them and wants to live with them forever. If there's any other reason for your being here, y'all ought to go home. And I don't want you to do that. I'm going to ask these questions, and you may ponder on them for yourself. But think about the people in your neighborhood, in your community, who don't understand God and don't know how to trust Him. Yet, when God invited you into a relationship with Him, He also brought with that invitation an expectation that you would be His representative. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a witness. You can't escape that reality. Have you ever wanted to die? Late one Friday evening, I received a phone call from a young person who informed me that life had come to an end. And would I please explain to her why it should continue? They had pulled her off a bridge and on a busy city freeway. She was about to jump off. She was a Seventh-day Adventist whose father had repeatedly raped her. Most of us at one point or the other really come to wonder about the purpose of continuing if we're honest with ourselves. We long for the elimination of the problems that confront us. Death sometimes seems like an answer. Listen carefully to this statement from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 and 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here 
and watch with me. There was an agony deep within the mind of Jesus where he could taste it. We are led to understand and we believe that had he not been serviced and helped by ministering angels that he would have died in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm not attempting to say here that Jesus experienced depression and wanted to commit suicide. Don't walk away with that idea. However, I am saying that he understands how we feel when we have those, quotes unto death feelings because he had them in the Garden of Gethsemane. Does God understand the men and women in your community? Have you ever felt betrayed by your friends? Perhaps your wife, your husband, your mother, your father. I talked to a, a young man within the last 48 hours who phoned me to tell me that one of his very closest relatives had uttered a death threat to him. Ever felt betrayed? Think about the thousands of people who invested money with Bernie Madoff. Jesus knows what that feels like. Judas betrayed him for a tiny fraction of what he was really worth, even in human terms. And Peter wasn't very true to him. John, the one whom Jesus loved, was only willing to follow him at a distance when it came right down to it. And the Bible adds this interesting little bit of information in Matthew 26, verse 56. All of his disciples forsook him and fled. Think about it. All of them. Does Jesus know what betrayal is about? Of course he knows. How about false accusations? Anyone ever tell a lie about you? You know how hard that hurts when people start telling lies about you? You know, I always tell people if they just followed me around, they could tell the truth about me and it might always not look good. There's a man who was recently released from prison, 14 years, 3 months, and 8 days in prison because of a false accusation. How would you feel? Well, at the trial of Jesus, the religious leaders brought in one witness after the next who perjured themselves over and over again. Jesus knows what it's like to be the butt end of the false accusation. And one of the biggest fears that any of us face is the fear of being rejected. That while we do our best to be with it, we discover that we never really have made it and that those we associate uh, with uh, think that we are dweebs or dorks or losers or whatever or weirdos. It's a very real fear. And you've experienced it. You've seen men and women who have been rejected. I had a lady show up at my doorstep while I was a pastor. She said, I have to come in and talk to you and your wife. I'm broken. What had happened to her? And she was in bed with her husband that morning. And he rolled over and said, today I will have my operation. I am becoming a woman. 
Let me tell you this evening that this was an ever-present part of the experience of Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to what the Bible says of him. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he was hid as it were, or and we hid as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Does he, knows what it, does he know what it feels like to be rejected? Of course he does. Of course he does. Have you ever felt intimidated? Have you ever felt really intimidated by a parent or by a boss, by a husband, by a wife? Intimidated? Do people in our society feel intimidated at times? Of course they do. I remember coming home from school one night, and as we were coming, I was with two of my friends. We were coming around the corner, uh, or around a corner, and a car pulled up beside us, and a group of uh, about six young men jumped out of the car with beer bottles, which they proceeded to break over the fence on the side of the road, and then came and held those broken beer bottles to our throats. Not a nice thing to be intimidated. I don't act, you know, I, I, I look at the life of Jesus and I say, how is it that he could do that and never fight back? Because when people try to intimidate me, I think I get to about my lowest point spiritually and were it not for the reality that God's Holy Spirit gives us courage and strength, we would do things and say things that were totally inappropriate. Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, Luke chapter 22, verse 63, they spit on him and hit him in the face and mocked him throughout the duration of his trial. Does Jesus know what physical intimidation is about? Of course he does. What about the time when you feel no contact with God? That you wonder if God really even exists when nothing seems to work. I walked into a hospital room with my wife. And there laying on the bed was a young physician. Well, actually, he was an orthodontist. And uh, he was dying. He had brain cancer. He was in the last part of his life. And his father, who was a physician, was standing behind him, holding his neck up like this, so that he could still draw air. And as I walked into the room that night, the good doctor looked at me and said, okay, pastor, I want you to give me your theology of prayer now. And I shared that prayer does not bring God down to us. It brings us up to him and helps us understand his benevolence and his love even in the midst of tragedy. Listen to these words. They were first recorded in Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I am not silent. If you want to talk about it in a formal way, Jesus hung on the cross, and it is true that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, but as Jesus hung upon the cross, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. And he cried out, not in some kind of play act, to his heavenly father, the one he had always been connected to. Why have you forsaken me? Read Psalm chapter 22 tonight and you will work your way right into the inner feelings that Jesus Christ had in his mind when he faced the horrors of the cross at Calvary. You see, he knows what it's like to suffer. And praise God, he is acquainted with the feelings that are associated with your weaknesses and my weaknesses and the weaknesses of the men and the women and the young people and the boys and girls in your community. So much of what we call connection with God depends on our ability to understand Jesus in this light, to see him as one sent by God to help us as we struggle with our personal weaknesses and problems, to see him dealing with his own pain, sorrow, and intense feelings, and then offering us his strength in order to deal with our inner feelings. Do we have a message to give to the world? Do we have hope to offer to our neighbors? We do, and we should not be ashamed to do it because of the fact that God came in human form, lived in our midst, faced what we faced and did it so that we could understand the eternal love of a God who loves every human being on planet earth regardless of where they were born or what their persuasion etc 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 she uh, she called me on the phone and she said she was going to commit suicide I referred to her earlier. I drove to the city where she was in the hospital. And I went into her room and tried to talk to her. She would not talk. I asked her if I could pray with her. And she would not let me pray with her. So I had one final little trick up my sleeve. I knew she loved, this might be sacrilegious to you, I knew she loved John Denver. So I said to her, well, let's sing John Denver songs. Will you do that? And she said, I will. And she got her, picked up her guitar, and uh, we wound up serenading a ward in the hospital. We sang John Denver songs, for about 45 minutes. And at the end of that period, I said, hey, can I pray with you now? And she said, yes. Let me tell you a part of my prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the Rocky Mountain High. 
we were in British Columbia after all. But I thank you for the Rocky Mountain High that my sister and I could talk through music. That lady, not because of that event, but because of the working of the Holy Spirit, that lady's life was changed. See, God is in the hope, wholeness, and healing business. And that's why he called you to be here. So you can be his hands and his feet. So you can reach your community with the great news of a God who knows their pain, who knows frustration, and who can help them grow beyond it and have a happy and healthy life. The thing that I love about this whole story, you know, the other day I was walking out of my office and I was accosted by somebody and they said to me, why is it that we always complicate everything? The next 50 minutes will be sponsored by a... No. <laughs> why is it that we always complicate everything? We have a great message, a wonderful message centered on our Lord Jesus Christ and on God's determination to bring people's happiness. And then we have the assurance that he can strengthen and heal, that his strength is perfect, that he can do through us what we can never do by ourselves. I'm going to stop with these words just before we hear some music that God never asks about your ability. He just asks about your availability. God bless you. I pray that these will be wonderful moments for you, that God's sweet spirit will walk up and down these halls and in the classrooms and in your mind and that this week will be a week that will establish wonderful things for the gospel of Jesus. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.